Hey, everybody. Before we get started, we want to let you know some of the discussion does center around an area that's deeply sensitive and triggering for some, and that's suicide. We don't take this issue lightly and want you to know that if you are struggling and in need of help, it's readily available for you. You can call the 24-hour National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 800-273-8255 or visit suicidepreventionlifeline.org. Now let's get to the show. Have you ever thought about what your mailman has for breakfast? Have you ever wondered what your neighbor's favorite song is? And do you ever look at someone and think, I bet they have a story to tell? Well, welcome to Ordinary Interesting, where we will ask all of those questions. And more. As we bring out the interesting in ordinary people. Hey, Michael. How's it going? Hey, Chris. I'm doing well. How are you doing? Doing, doing good. How was your day? How are things going? My day was good. Man, it is, it is hot here in Indiana. I mean, it was 93 degrees today with an equal humidity level. And I went to the pool after work because I couldn't think of anything else to do to cool down. I mean, the whole U.S. is having a heat wave. Mm-hmm. I read something about having people sleep in like an Amazon warehouse in Canada because of the heat wave or something. It's just, I mean, the wow. north is getting hit with a crazy heat wave. It's nuts. It's the conditions are so bad in Canada. They'd rather be in an Amazon warehouse <laughs> than anywhere else. That I mean, tells you something. I, I kind of want to do that though. I don't, I don't know what an Amazon warehouse looks like, but it, I mean, it, it would be interesting just to see mm. what, I mean, sleep next to whatever machine it is that labels the packages. And I don't know. It just, it sounds like bottles of pee probably as well. <laughs> Why would that be there? Have you not been keeping up with what's going on with Amazon's workers and warehouse conditions? With them having to, what, pee in containers because they can't go to the bathroom or whatever? Yeah. I've read about not that. Not being not allowed, all that. Yeah, that's what I'm referring to. Which, I mean, I've yet to receive a vial of pee in the mail in one of my packages. So, I mean, that's not happened yet. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> Already getting off to a good start. Yes, yeah. here we go. Well, that's, be good that, that's, I mean, 93 is pretty hot, but it's not that bad. I mean, it's not like it is in the Northwest right now. Not that we're the weather channel here, but. No, we're yeah. not the Weather Channel here. That's for no. sure. That's Although, you know what? Okay, so you with your ridiculous podcaster, thank you for flying Delta Airlines uh-huh. voice, you would be a great meteorologist because I... they're just full of just credible bullshit is what I think <laughs> that is. <laughs> because, I mean, the rest of us don't know that they're wrong. You have to have a degree in meteorology. Like, you actually have to that, understand really? it. So you can explain it intelligently. Like these people actually spend time on a computer in the back going, Hey, look, there's a cold front moving in and we're going to need to worry about the weather. (laughs) It's the best job ever. Like you could fail week in week out. And the only thing people can be mad at is God. It's God. (laughs) Exactly. Right. Like, do you not think so? Someone like me who likes has a little bit of a failure complex. I would have a hard time with that job because if I said, oh, it's, it's going to rain tonight at like 7 p.m. And mm-hmm. then the sun comes out at 6.58 and it's sunny without a cloud in the sky, I would just look up at the sky and I would just curse God and feel horrible. <laughs> and I just because I feel like I will have failed and there's nothing I could do about it. I'm going to resign immediately. <laughs> the weather's pretty predictable seasonally most well, of the time. I mean, you, you couldn't predict what's going on in the Northwest right now. If you didn't know what the weather conditions were going to be to begin with, like if those people knew that these things were coming together and these, this situation could happen, 
and they were able to say, hey, the weather's going to get really hot. I mean, they were off by a few degrees, like in Portland, I think they were off by, I think they were supposed to get up to 117 today, and they got up to 116 or something like that. Like, it's not the end of the world being off by a few, but that's still pretty darn good. I really only watch the weather. If I'm going to watch the weather, it's just because I find the meteorologist attractive. Like, that's the only reason why I watch the weather forecast. Not because I actually care about what's about to happen, because I have my AccuWeather app on my iPhone for that. On that note, Michael, who is our guest? So our guest, a wonderful friend of mine, his name is Jonathan Press. A little bit of background. So he and I met about five years ago. So I've been uh, a member of another podcast called Inglorious Pastors. It's a wonderful podcast. Check it out. It's all about kind of Christian deconstruction and a community of people who have at one time had a, a faith or identified differently or asked questions about their faith. So it was a great community for me when I was kind of moving out of Christianity and kind of re-examining my faith and all of that. And I met Jonathan on a social board that we have on Facebook through that group. And he just kind of shared a little bit about his journey, some some basic stuff. And I reached out to him and just said, I'm here to support you. And, you know, it was kind of the, around the time when I had come out just a little bit before that. He was kind of going through some similar stuff and we just got to talking and our friendship just got really, really strong and learned tons about each other and just kind of really grew together as friends and, and supported each other a lot. Mm-hmm. And I actually wound up going out and visiting him and we had lots of fun on, on that trip. So, yes, ready to go ahead and move into it? Yeah, let's dive in. Okay, let's do it. So, I want to just jump to the heart of it. So, oh God. I'm going <laughs> to go ahead and I'm going to read what you told us when we asked you this question of what's the most interesting thing about you? So, I'm going to read this blurb and we're just going to kick it off. Okay. All right, we're just going to get going. Rip all right? off the band-aid. Yes. Yeah, so, what is the most interesting thing about you? And you said, I was married to a woman for 25 years. I survived 15 years of Exodus Ministries, living successfully with bipolar disorder and PTSD. I get IV ketamine infusions between my husband and I, just married on May 22nd of this year. We have five queer kids. So, Jonathan Press, that is a lot. So, we're going to go ahead and dive in only on this podcast or on your interesting. So, let's go ahead and get into it. So, I want to just, first of all, open it up. I want to ask, so, where, where do we begin? my god i don't even know yeah I, we we met in the inglorious pastors podcast chat group the pub and he pretty much adopted me after i came out you know just kind of like okay bitch let me just explain how this you know just kind of came alongside me and, mm-hmm. and was a coach you know in terms of my whole perspective shifted on so many things. When I came out, I was in the evangelical Christian world and all of a sudden whoosh, that all changed and he just came along and he was my buddy. I was Kimmy Schmidt. I didn't know what the hell was going on. <laughs> so let's kind of go back to the beginning. So where are you from? Let's start with that. I'm from the thriving metropolis of Richmond, Virginia. I grew up there, um, lived there for about 30 years and then moved away for work. Okay. And what kind of work was that? Let's see, at the time I was in the paper industry, cue the Dunder Mifflin thing, because it is every bit of that, but with a Swedish accent. You said you went to school there? In Virginia, yeah. I went to Mary Washington College in Fredericksburg. So I got a, a degree in world religions, and then I went on to get a master's in Christian education. World religions. That sounds yeah. interesting. So how did those two 
study areas. What did that do for your career? Like, what, I have what, a feeling the answer that's coming is it didn't. It's gonna, you know, <laughs> and we were all towards an end at the time. I was like, you know, deep in the evangelical Christian world, and my intent was to be in vocational ministry. You know, that was like kind of held up as like that's the be all end all of really selling out for the Lord. So all my degrees were in this direction. I never considered that there, what if I didn't do ministry? Like what was my fallback? But I had a fallback because I had to put myself through grad school. So I had worked in banking through that whole time. And so the ministry thing didn't pan out as I didn't really have, they don't really give you a lot of the practicals of like, people are going to suck the ever living life out of you and you have to have really good boundaries and people are going to die and expect you to know what to say. Mm -hmm. And it went toxic in that first church, you know? Mm -hmm. And so it really soured me. So I had to fall back, you know, to go into what's my career going to be. And so I kind of explored from there. And what did your career wind up being? So now what really for the majority of my career, I've been in customer success in software. So I'm, I'm the guy who's between the geeks and the users. You kind of keep the geeks in the dark <laughs> in programming in the basement with Mountain Dew, and we don't want them to talk to the customers, and they're happy not talking to the customers. So I translate between the two, mm. teach the customers how to use the stuff and break it down. I train on how to use the software and tech support and that kind of exciting stuff. Okay. Tech support's exciting. <laughs> <laughs> So I want to kind of bring us back a little bit to, you had talked about your summary studies in school and the religion aspect of it. Where were you at with God and kind of your areas in Christianity and in this part of your life? How do we kind of bring the two together? So, I mean, I really got those degrees to be in ministry. I did internships in, in college. I got married and really sought a partner who was going to be as ministry-minded as I was going to be. And that was it. That was the the main thing is being in love with Jesus and serving. And, you know, for us at the time, it was going to be youth ministry and then urban missions, which in retrospect, man, I know. So <laughs> very, I have a different lens on that whole thing. So when you say urban missions, tell us a little bit more about that. What do you mean by urban missions? So we planted, helped plant a church in, you know, downtown Richmond in the fan district. It's kind of a arts area near VCU. And the goal there was to kind of serve the people who needed serving in that area. So the church tried to do it in very intangible ways, helping out in the community with uh, tutoring after school, giving out water in the park and food to the homeless that were near our church and inviting the community in. But it was also very heavy-handed evangelical assemblies of God. The ultimate goal here is to save souls. So mm -hmm. in retrospect, it was kind of like a kind of a lure, if that makes sense. Yeah. I mean, I don't know that it was intentionally deceptive, but, you know, we're going to demonstrate this very generous outpouring of love, but it doesn't come without a cost. We ultimately want you to come to the church and get saved and plug in and serve and tithe. And so it was kind of like um, a recruiting. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. So where were you at with your faith beliefs? Because it, it, it's very, very heavily based on God and Christianity and the evangelical faith. And so wh where were you at with all this at the time in your life? Kind of how were you feeling with it? Where were you at? I was absolutely in love with God. And I grew up Jewish and through a, a loss of a close loved one, kind of went through a crisis of faith. 
And that was part of the conversion experience for me is someone telling me that there was this relationship with God and all this stuff that I'd never heard about in Judaism. And then dude introduces me to his circle of friends who all are very loving and accepting of each other and, and also have this same passion. It was just like, for me, I'm like, where has this been? You know, where are the people who just doesn't matter where you come from or your socioeconomic, you know, but everybody's hugging on each other. And, you know, if someone goes through a crisis, they get prayed for and there's all this singing and it was very appealing, you know, and it was charismatic. And um, I, you know, kind of very innocently was right for the picking at, at the time, you know, and so that went over like a turd in a punch bowl with my Jewish family. <laughs> a turd in do, a punch bowl? Do you bowl? think that in any way that that, like, mm-hmm. that turd in the punch bowl was an accelerant <laughs> for the decision to move your faith in that direction? In other words, was it somewhat oh, yeah, of a rebellion sure. too? Well, I no, I wasn't trying to rebel, but when they clamped down so hard, like so violently fought against my process and my decisions, it, it kind of push me further in and at the same time they're telling you that in order to follow jesus sometimes you have to you know do what you feel god calling you to do and you know that may be not listening to what your mom and dad or your brother and sister and you know they take Mm. those scriptures Mm -hmm. about so it was like that's the cost of following the lord you know and um i was in man i was the lead in our senior our high school musical my senior year we did the music man and i was harold hill and there was this like crazy convergence of my singing and performance quickly going from my high school stage to the church stage so it was like my passion and charisma just easily translated to that and i was just very enthusiastic and very vocal about my faith and singing about it and you know they were more than happy to let me Especially because I was like, you know, we did the, what is it, 23andMe DNA testing. Mm-hmm. I am really boring. There's like no branches to the family tree. It's, it's kind of questionable, really. But that's another podcast. But it's <laughs> 99.8% Ashkenazi Jew. So I am as, you know, Jewy as Jew can get. And so for them to have a converted or a completed Jew is like a jewel in your crown to get someone saved. So it made for a really awesome story. You know, the high school quarterback leads the, the high school musicals of the Lord and he's Jewish. And now they're in the, you know, a musical with the youth group touring. And, you know, it's a very compelling story. Wow. Yeah. I didn't know you were in the music, man. I just need, yes. I did not know that because I was too. Oh my gosh. I was in the barber shop quartet. That was because yes. I wasn't given a role. <laughs> like I was said, said, oh, you look cute in this striped hat and you can stand up there in like pinstripes and polka dots and you, you can sing with these other dudes about love. That's a role. They're they're like iconic, but sorry. Oh, yeah, I, I loved those songs. Pick little talk, little Shapoopy, letter rose. Oh, I mean, it's mm-hmm. don't even. Yeah, it's Girl, how did we thing. not have this moment? I don't I know. I don't know you were in this that play. I mean, I have so many photos of this that I'm a little bit embarrassed about. But oh man, I think they need to go on this episode show notes. <sighs> no, uh, no, they won't. Yeah, you'll have to call um, your mom and get them. No, I I'm not. I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna <laughs> call Phyllis. I, first of all, I have those pictures. Phyllis. I have them, mm. and they will not be released. There'll be a very special <laughs> podcast. Mm. The one that'd be a very last podcast mm. before I just fade off into obscurity. So that's not gonna happen. 
So kind of bringing us back, Jonathan. So talking about the people in your life, your family, you know, who are your supporters, who are your challengers, like kind of where, where were you at with relationships and people in your life at that point? At that point, so gosh, things were really, really tense with my folks, and it kind of forced me into two lives, you know, in order to be able to go to church and be part of any fellowship, I had to like spend the night at someone else's house and then go to church with them in the morning because they weren't, you know, yeah, they made it very difficult for me. And and my mom was just very belligerent and condescending. I think it was also an intellectual offense to her because she's an atheist. You know, it was kind of like this. I thought we were on the same page. What the hell are you talking about? Personal relationship with a God and Trinity and the Bible is literal and all, you know, it was just like ridiculous to her. And my dad was hurt and just trying to understand. But yeah, I mean, I went, I went from that. It drew me closer into the church because that was my only family at the time. Mm. It was like, man, I, I didn't realize how badly those bridges, I, did, I, I don't know. I, I was naive enough to think, okay, we'll get through this and they're not going to like it. But I was 18, so very vulnerable. And so I, they drew me in. So this is before college then? Yep. Yep. All about, I mean, every night getting together with youth group in some capacity, we went on missions trips and, um, where'd you go? Gosh. Oh man. During that time. And then during the course of college, I went to Dominica in the West Indies, Spain, Germany, Israel. I went to Israel with Jews for Jesus in college. That's another story. <laughs> I didn't know. Is that, is that Mexico, literally the name of it? Dominican wow. Republic. Wow. Yeah. Puerto Rico. Wait, Jews for Jesus. That's that's, that's a really thing. The name. Oh yeah, really. Whoa. I thought it was a joke, like a joke of a nope. name for so okay. there's an evangelical movement. I don't know if they still exist, but back then, you know, it was a thing. It was kind of like, you know, if you get converted Jew, you get like the pink Cadillac kind of a <laughs> <laughs> it's like a Mary Kay in the Mary Kay Cadillac. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> the Pepto Bismol Cadillac. So there was this ministry of who sought to convert other Jews to Jesus and mm-hmm. oftentimes worked uh, as a partner ministry alongside of churches to teach mm-hmm. them how to evangelize and proselytize Jews. Yeah. And again, no frame of reference for me. I'm, I go in to this church. I'm thinking this is all Christians proselytize. All Christians raise their hands during worship. You know, it was after the fact when I realized, oh, wait, not all, not all Christians do that, but so yeah, Jews for Jesus is an organization because like when you convert the temple, I mean, you're out, you know what I mean? And they're not going to be taking you to Israel with the B'nai B'rith youth group if you're like, you know, Jesus is the Messiah. So Jews for Jesus stepped in and they had private funding to take us Jewish kids who had converted on this privately funded trip to Israel. Mm. So we went with them. But it was to go and to evangelize, and it was to oh. go and to meet with other Messianic Jews and to go on a Bible site tour, Bible tours of Bible sites with a very specific purpose, and ultimately hoping that we would join the ranks. Yeah. I have an old boss who is now a Messianic pastor in Los Angeles, of all places. There you go. So that's been an interesting journey I, I don't know how much i want to discuss that on the air but after this episode, i'll happily discuss more there details so many rabbit trails we could take but yes, yes. <laughs> I, I just i didn't know this about you this is really cool stuff i feel like you just made up this podcast so you could ask me all this shit you've been wanting to just oh, sit down no, you've, you've discovered the secret like 
this is really why this podcast exists. It's just because I want to pummel my friends with questions I've been dying to ask them. And then I'm look you in the eyes, share the entire <laughs> world, put a public forum where everyone can hear it. That's exactly my plan. That's what we so, do. It's brilliant. Yes. Yeah. You finally cracked my diabolical code. So <laughs> congratulations. Yep. So you said that you were 18, you can just kind of going through college. And so, yeah. so kind of move us forward. So take us into the college years. And you had said earlier when you were kind of asking about some of the things that were interesting about you, you talk a little bit about sort of having exodus. And so mm-hmm. where the move with bipolar. So how does some of that start to kind of weave into the story? Right. So I knew, I mean, I was struggling with these same sex attractions. That was the language that they threw out early on in my experience in the assemblies of God. And I knew that there was a very clear stance on, you know, homosexuality being a choice, a lifestyle, and not God's best for you. But I also heard how pastors referred to gay people behind closed doors and in the jokes. So, I mean, there was a clear text and there was a clear subtext coming into the church the way I did and the capital C church, not a specific church, but just coming into the evangelical church, I was immediately like hanging out with the pastors and their families because my best friend was the pastor's son. So I was like in that, I felt kind of the pressure and encouragement to be part of that kind of, I've got to serve in ministry in some way. This is what all my peers are doing. This is what everybody loves. And this is the best way to serve the Lord. But I knew in the midst of all that, being gay was not okay. And I, you know, was just kind of stuffing that. I'd never really acted on it. And the further along I got, I remember, like, I think it was my freshman year at college, Mary Washington, InterVarsity brought in Cy Rogers from Exodus International. And he was like this very fey, you know, effeminate gay man, I'm sorry, ex-gay man, (laughs) who got up Mm -hmm. there and very sassily told us how Jesus delivered him from his homosexuality and yada, yada. So I'm like, okay, this is the way out. Didn't tell anybody, just, you know, very much internalized. I was mortified. And I remember thinking I would rather die than tell anyone this. Literally. I mean, I was just like, there's no way. And that from a lot of, you know, childhood bullying in the South in the seventies, that is also in the background in my head of just toxic masculinity and queers and how just gross and, and disgusting it was to be a gay. And so all of that is in my head and I'm like, okay, well, Jesus heals you and Jesus gives you a new life and Jesus can take this away. That's what they're telling me. And, you know, as I progress through college, I'm clinging to that at the same time, I think it was like my sophomore year, I really started struggling with depression and anxiety. And the more I tried tightly to stuff this, it just kind of burst out in other ways, but not, I don't think because of this, but I think these stresses pushed to the surface, the expression of bipolar disorder. I think the predisposition was already there. It's genetic, but I think the intense stress and unhealth of contorting into that place made me really sick. So I got diagnosed with bipolar. I was, I want to say I was a sophomore in college. And, you know, at that point with mental health, they're like, okay, it was literally like the first visit because by the time I got there, I was having such a, I could hardly speak in complete sentences and finish thoughts. I couldn't really articulate what was really the struggle other than, you know, 
chunks and pieces. And obviously I was depressed. I'd been missing classes, staying up for days, spending money on friends, giving it away very generously and Jesus-y. It was all in a very charismatic, hyper-religious context. So there wasn't anyone there who was going to be like, hey, buddy, you better calm down because it seemed awesome until I was not well. So they wrote you a prescription for lithium and Prozac and said, we'll see you in a month. That's it. I mean, I didn't know what the hell bipolar disorder was. I had no education, no support. And I knew that mental health also in the evangelical church at that point, you know, the response was to pray it away. So I had a lot of things I was supposed to be praying away. As someone who's been through, not, not the same struggle as you and all the direct details, but similar issues with the same sex attraction and kind of working through the church and that it's really a difficult thing. And I, I do not have any experience with bipolar, but I would love to learn more about what that's like. And so when you talk about bipolar disorder, what was the diagnosis process? Like what, what were some more of your symptoms and kind of how would that affect your everyday life, like working and relationships and all of that? So for me at the time, bipolar disorder looked like either catatonic depression where I would not eat for days and I would just sleep and maybe shower, you know, which you can blend into a dorm pretty easily in that. And then I could be really despondent and kind of, inconsolably sad. And then I would also be very charismatic and hilarious and the life of the party. And, you know, but, you know, for as high as I would get, the higher you experience, the more precipitous the crash. So there's a cost to that. So yeah, that started coming out. And then they sent me to the campus therapist. And I was really confused. I didn't understand why they, they, the RD, I think referred me there. Because I'm like, I'm just having a hard time. I'm a college kid and blah, blah. And I think they had seen enough to be like, I think you might need some help. So, and that was through the campus, not through any ministries. So what what was that kind of the, the path of that help? So kind of how did that evolve over time? And kind of as you move through kind of the, the later college years and out of that, like how did that, the help that you're getting, the medication you were on, the therapy that you were, that you had for that, Mm-hmm. You know, was it effective? Was it not effective? Like, how did that kind of move forward? Yeah. So, um, with the lithium, I just put on all this weight and my hair started falling out early. Pretty sure I would have this lovely haircut, you know, my baldness regardless. <laughs> but it started, I remember trying to study and I say trying, take my hand off of my head and there was just all this hair on my hand. And I'm like, there's so many potential jokes that we're going to skip over that. But, um, <laughs> and I was like, I knew that it was, I thought it was stress. I thought, you know, gosh, I don't remember my dad telling me his hair fell out this early, but, you know, I gained a bunch of weight from it. I was tired all the time with and without the medication at that time. I couldn't read Mm. at that point in my life. I couldn't get through a page of text and comprehend it. So I would read it and reread it and reread it. And I would just get more and more stressed. What's wrong with me? Mm. I just thought I was distracted. I just needed a nap. I don't know. It was like this loop. And um, that really, we didn't get traction until much later. That really was an ADHD piece mixed in. 
you know, I, I often look back at what my college experience would have been like had they been able to diagnose that and treat it better if the resources were better. But at the time, lithium was the gold standard. You know, that's if you had bipolar disorder. At the same time, though, there's there's two different types of bipolar, and they didn't know that then. So I wasn't psychotic. I wasn't hearing things that weren't there or seeing, you know, interacting with things that weren't there. So I didn't have that side of bipolar, but they treated them all the same back then. There wasn't that nuanced and the treat, the course of treatment can be very different. So I was unnecessarily sedated really is how that, what that boiled out to be. Oh, man. I think this is so interesting, like how mental health treatment has progressed over the past, you know, 10, 15, 20, 30 years is so interesting to me. So I'm curious, can mm-hmm. you give us, give us a, a marker in time? So you kind of have like, like a year or a decade. Okay. When this so that was, was 1990, on. I think. Okay. 1990. Yeah. Okay. I've heard before that that period of time, medicine for mental disorders or for therapy was very reactionary and really intense. It wasn't like I've heard that it's kind of a lot more nuanced and a lot more focused on cognitive behavioral analysis more and more based off of that research. But then it was just kind of a, almost like just shooting in the dark, trying to figure out like, well, let's throw this medicine at it and let's do this. Yeah. And let's have I mean, this. Prozac had like just come out. That's yeah. just SSRIs. Like that's what they prescribed was Prozac. And I was like, okay. Oh my God, I'm on Prozac now. <laughs> you know? <laughs> and with that comes all the side effects too, you know? There's sexual side effects and weight gain and, you know, like I was saying, the constant sleepiness, yawning. And you're like, I don't mean to be rude, but I'm constantly yawning in people's faces at the time. (laughs) But, yeah, I mean, that was a lot has changed since then medically. Well, couldn't you say that the weight gain and the the yawning is the sexual side effect? (laughs) They all kind of go hand in hand. Uh, no. <laughs> Chris is just now getting this. The light bulb yeah. is just turning is just going wow. off. I can see it. <laughs> wow. That was that was great. <laughs> yeah, that was that was bad. I, I apologize for that. I'm gonna pull that one back. Thank you. Thank you, uh, <laughs> And during during all of this also is the backdrop of I'm in InterVarsity Christian Fellowship and I'm a Bible study leader and I'm up again, on stage every Friday night as an MC to the large group gathering. So it was like my Christianity was always very public. I didn't feel like I had the privilege of struggling through any of this crap in private because it was like you have to be willing to testify. And people were constantly, what, what's God doing in your life? I, I felt constantly accountable is not the word, but like anytime they wanted to just look at you under the microscope, you know, that was allowed. Mm. So you had to keep up appearances, essentially, had to make sure that we're going to give you all these roles and responsibilities. And oh, by the way, there's this morality clause, and then you have to attend all these Bible studies, and you have to, you know, memorize all these scriptures, you know. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, there was there was pressure there. But at the same time, I really loved it because I felt like I was excelling at I was passionate, absolutely head over heels in love with Jesus. And I wanted to do you know, I was absolutely enamored with worship ministry and, you know, Christian themed drama and that kind of a thing. And so it Mm. was, you know, a good fit, but at the same time it was like, Hey, you're on stage and we're going to pay attention to everything you do. Yeah. People look up to you. 
when you're in that in that role and that's yeah. a lot of what you're told i've been in worship bands michael has too like we've mm-hmm. we've all yeah been <laughs> and, it, and it was a lot at, at a young age like i think mm-hmm. I, over time i kind of grew to appreciate the the weight of that responsibility but back then it was just like all these do's and don'ts like just you need to be this yeah you know mm-hmm. and i mean i at least i felt that i kind of enjoyed yeah. that aspect of it just just like you were saying because one thing I, I like about especially what the evangelical church does is the emphasis on community and acceptance is actually a really good thing mm-hmm. i've told a lot of people i don't think that adults are good at building relationships and making friends outside of like forced work requirements. Mm-hmm. But for some reason in the evangelical church, I've noticed that that is a, as a very strong part of the culture that I really enjoyed. And, and yes, there was a lot, at least for speaking from my perspective, there was, there was a lot of things, you know, cause I, I dealt with being in the closets and, and same sex attraction and all that same stuff. And, you know, Chris has kind of been right there along with me on some of that journey. I shared a lot of that with him when I was going through it back then. And that's one thing that I have, I greatly miss, like being out of that community. The camaraderie is the, is the get togetherness, is the shared understanding of one goal, you know, trying to, you know, live your life for a common cause. Like I kind of, miss, I think it's hard to find in other areas. Yeah. There's a lot of community and a lot of very intimate moments that you walk through some very personal profound moments that you walk with people through Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. the births and the deaths and the marriages and the celebrations and that you know in the context of being a worship leader you know i sang a lot of funerals and present for some really sacred moments that i you know i felt like they were an honor to be part of at Mm -hmm. the same time you know it's some very um I don't know. Yeah. So you don't have those avenues for connection. You don't just get together randomly, have a potluck with 30 people on a (laughs) Sunday, you know what I mean? Outside of those contexts, typically. Those potlucks are good though. I mean, I miss the potlucks. Like I miss the Watergate salad that all the church grandmas would make. That was so good. Just full, just delicious. And the, the long sandwiches. Yes. Oh, and the, the the mini sandwiches and the little wait, cups wait, funeral, of punch. Funeral potatoes? Funeral what? potatoes. I don't know if Ian calls them that. There's some cheesy potato dish. Uh, just cheesy potatoes is what I had never heard of. They only bring them to like potatoes. funerals and wakes. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> oh, but those are good, though. Like, I don't know what yes. it is about, like, the shared love of Jesus and, like, just... And carbs just and cheese. Intense mm-hmm. casseroles that just yes. somehow... The blend of that and just and really poorly watered down church punch like that is also <laughs> like like served with and one, bad coffee yeah mm. a really really, oh, really bad, bad coffee and no, of course I don't actually have tea because that's not a thing like people don't you don't drink tea at church you drink coffee yeah. like that's what you do yeah really really out, out of the the same like old church thing that they've been using for the past thirty years yeah oh yeah so I love that when you you had said like the whole acceptance. It's acceptance, but it's conditional. You know what I mean? It's it's Mm -hmm. acceptance if you're like us, but when you're outside of these lines, we're going to have a problem with it. And, you know, it's not acceptance at the same time. So how how did you cope with that? I had an kind of a experience of otherness already in coming in Jewish. Like there's a lot of cultural differences in the way that 
white people in the South do church versus what I'd grown up experienced. Both my parents were from the Bronx and I was very opinionated and very affectionate. And, you know, in Jewish culture, men hug each other. You kiss your elders on the cheek and, you know, and church doesn't do that. Like there's like kind of these, a lot of stiff hugs. So I kind of had to kind of code switch and, and adapt to that culture. You know, at the same time as an Enneagram too, you kind of, you figure out how the folks around you are, are functioning, how they're doing things. And you just kind of learn to, to blend and assimilate to mm-hmm. speak the language. You just mentioned the Enneagram. So oh let's, God. Let's, let's take a pause real quick. <laughs> you, mean, you mean the Christian, the Christian astrology. Oh God. Do y'all need a moment? <laughs> so quick, walk us through so like, what is the Enneagram? Enneagram? What does that mean to you? How has it been important in your life? Okay, girl, do not make me explain the Enneagram. I'm a, <laughs> I'm a two. You want to f- you want a five on here to explain that shit. I will just tell you, I am an Enneagram too. My, my center, I'm, I'm heart centered thinking. So I yeah. think with my feelings, but literally it's, it's a heart centered intelligence. So it's not like, you know, Oh, whatever my heart tells me to do. It's like every fiber of my being, it's just all centered mm-hmm. in my heart. So that drives a lot of my, the way I relate. It drives, you know, it, it's, drives some of my motivations, my fears, my avoidances. So, yeah, so I'm an Enneagram 2. You're a 6. I am. Uh, No, 7. Well, uh, we've been talking about this. So I was a 6 when I first took it, and I Mm -hmm. firmly believe that. I think that there's still a lot of 6 in me, however, I think the past year or so i've developed a lot and i think that that's changed a bit and i definitely have become a lot more bold in some areas and i think that that may be translating more over into the seven world a little bit so i mean those of you out there who don't know enneagram is look it up it's it's a really interesting test that you can take that kind of gives you some personality markers based off of some important things about yourself and kind of how you think and how you relate to people and kind of what your default way of believing and acting is it's kind of like like myers-briggs or strength finders but uh, yeah yeah, exactly yeah (laughs) it's a really great self-discovery and relationship building tool you know in in the first beginning years of i say beginning years we've been together all of a whopping three since living (laughs) together (laughs) it's been a great tool for conflict resolution and and understanding how you know your partner responds differently to something and that they're being completely genuine they just don't experience it the same way you do or you know so it's been really enlightening and fun chris have you taken the enneagram test before i have and and oh well hold on a second hang on let's guess please please do so (sighs) i don't know you well enough i'm gonna leave Mm. this to michael i think that's wise (laughs) i i'm probably gonna be completely wrong a three Mm, I'm going to say either I'm, I'm feeling nine a little bit, a little bit of mm. a nine, not a five. No, 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 I, or a one. Jonathan, I feel like you know me better than Michael. <laughs> oh no, did I get it wrong? <laughs> Are you a three with a two wing or a two with a three wing? Uh, I'm a you know. three. The, when I took it, I was like a, Three with a, I want to say an eight wing. Like it was something maybe that, I don't know. Three, Usually three your was wing my strongest. You. Okay. And then okay. eight was like right below it or something like that. It was one, it was one of the two. I couldn't remember exactly which way it went, but three and eight were the two big numbers. 
I got I you. I need okay. to take it again. Interesting. Well, usually they'll tell you, you know, this is your first most likely and your second most likely, but your wing is yeah. either one step to the right or to the left. So your wing would be, if you're a three, you'd have a four wing or a two wing. Okay. Yeah. I don't, I don't know the wing. I just knew I was like either a three or like a three or an eight. It's one All of those right. two. Well, I was completely wrong. Mm-hmm. I was, a t- I intuited that. I'm just kidding. You did. You did. <laughs> well, I guess I need to rethink everything at this point. So bringing us back a little bit to your story, struggling with bipolar and kind of move us later on kind of in your life and to now. So how, where are you at with it now? You know, and, and also, you know, you talked a little bit about going through Exodus and how to, how did that go? And so yeah. I, I want to hear so about these that. are kind of like happening at the same time, mm-hmm. but in my journey, then my mental health journey and my Christian life journey were not integrated. And that was really the way it worked back then. I mean, there was the charismatic church, certainly mental health was stigmatized and something that they wanted to pray away and, you know, medication if you had to, but, you know, really your first trust should be in the Lord and maybe God did want to heal you. And, you know, and then you would receive that message in different ways. It would come through counsel, direct counsel, or it would come through someone who was praying for you and, you know, had you on their heart or so you would get, some good counsel, like the senior pastor saying about medication, you know, sometimes like if you break your arm, you need a cast. And, you know, during that time you need healing and, you know, you don't want a lot of people touching your arm. You need to pull it, you know, close and protect it and and give it privacy. And so that kind of gave me a context in which to say, okay, well, medicines in my head is going to be temporary. You know, it's going to be a while while I heal. And I just didn't have a sense of how long and pervasive bipolar would be in my life would go to the psychiatrist i would go to a therapist and the worlds just didn't really cross Mm -hmm. i had enough negative experiences where i just wasn't it discouraged me from bringing it up again in a lot of faith circles at the same time i'm you know really have this strong libido you know just dying to explode you know and i'm like I majored in world religion and minor in masturbation. I, <laughs> <laughs> I wasn't in the library. You know where I was. No, I. <laughs> oh my goodness! <laughs> but the uh, the man, it, it really was about managing that and, yeah. and stuffing mm-hmm. that. And I started to split. You know, it was the ability to compartmentalize. It was not compatible with my Christian world. Wasn't compatible with what I thought God wanted from me, and so. If I did ever look at pornography or or struggle, quote unquote, with masturbation, there's a lot of shame and guilt that came after it. And then you're encouraged to repent and confess. And so then someone knows about your shit and then they're going to ask about your shit. But that builds up more of, um, I'm just going to wait longer to do it. And then I'm going to feel more guilty the next time I do it. And then I'm going to be more embarrassed that I have to confess to it. Mm-hmm. But even then, it was my confessions were very generic because ain't ain't nobody was up there talking about being attracted to the same sex, you know, at all, except for outside of this. You know, if you struggled with same sex attraction, here's an Exodus book or tract. Yeah, I've I have the similar experience with all of that, and I firmly thought that when when the when I was saying to my pastors, you know, I'm struggling with same sex attraction that it was like a temporary um, 
disease or disorder or something that was wrong that could be fixed. I really well, thought that. as it was. Yeah, and I wanted, like, I wanted to believe it so much. I think part of me knew that that was complete BS, that, that this was, like, an integrated part of who I was as a person. However, my intent, very much similar to you, my intense mm-hmm. drive to love the Lord and to follow Christ and to... You know, I was also very raised in the church and integrated with all that. And my my drive to live that life was so strong that I would do anything for it to be fixed, for it to be resolved. And, you know, just just find me the magic pamphlet or the, the formula or the class or the church group or the song or whatever it is that would cure me of the same sex attraction. But it, I, I love use the word split. And I like that because that's kind of what happens. I mean, I'm not saying that my story is similar to yours, so we've got different stuff, but I know what you're talking about where it, because you come to a crossroads of like my, my being and my identity is being pushed this direction, but I'm being pulled in this direction. And as I want to go in this direction because this is what I think is what's right for me, but I'm still moving over here because this is who I am as a person. And you're starting to, to bifurcate and split and how you control that is really tough. It's also treated as an addiction, like, a, you know, you have sex addiction. Mm-hmm. So there's 12 steps and, you know, ways around that. And, you know, I really believed that God was going to heal this because they told me, I mean, I, I, I had no reason not to, you know, I put all my eggs in that basket. How was I going to be like, nope, I'm going to, you know, I, I didn't have anyone else to take that to. Exactly. So I trusted that. And then. I started dating my then girlfriend who was my wife for 25 years and I really loved her as a person. I liked her as a friend. I loved her passion for the Lord and the things that we both wanted to do. There was a lot of encouraging us together, you know, like there was kind of some shepherding movement type of crap that went on in some of the churches around our campus and they, you know, the pastors would be like, "Oh man, if I were younger and that would be the kind of girl I would go for. And, you know, you see so-and-so over there, you know, and so they kind of like, you know, it was very marriage oriented, you know, while you're in college, everybody's already starting to think about who they're going to marry and Bible colleges do that. I was in a state school, but in the circle that was functioning like a Bible college. So they, you know, got to get married and, you know, cause you can't have sex till you get, till you get married. So that's probably a, a, good, a good part of it hurry up and get married so that you don't burn with lust and sin, you know? Yeah. It's almost like your journey does not begin until you start moving down the marriage path. Like all of a sudden, like now you're actually like, you're seen as a, as a boy beforehand, but the moment you, you know, pop on the ring and you start moving down the engagement path and you're moving into marriage. Okay. Now you're a man. Now we can actually believe that you're actually serious and can actually be an adult now. That's now. I, that's this is me talking from my perception and and for what I've been through. That's what I felt. Well, Michael, there's a secret club that you don't know about. Oh, and is there? Jonathan and I both have cards that you don't because we've both at least been married and have kids. <laughs> you know, so like there's there's whole two other levels of like adult passes that you don't even have. You haven't even collected yet. That's tomato, tomato. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You're really missing out. Let me tell you. <laughs> so when did you get married? Remember what year that was or kind of what? Yes. So we got married in 1993 
And I found out like the night, I mean, I had a lot of anxiety leading up to it in retrospect, realized, oh, you really were gay. (laughs) I mean, oh, girl. I mean, from five years old, why did they not know? But anyway, the (laughs) night of my honeymoon had a a panic attack. Like Mm. it, it just did my feelings didn't change and I was terrified and Mm. did not want to be touched by a woman. And, you know, we had been saving ourselves for marriage and, you know, we're innocent, which was such a huge victory in the Christian world then, but so naive and unprepared and so unfair to her, you know, she also believed that, you know, save yourself to marriage and this magic thing happens. And, she did not know, nor did I have the words to even describe the extent to which I, again, quote unquote, struggled with same sex attraction. Didn't know how gay I mean, that I was gay. Just I couldn't even say it to myself. And so that's when the journey started. Really, shortly after our honeymoon was in counseling for that. Wow. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I've had some friends that have been in that situation. Yeah. I've, had the observation of that and yeah like what's interesting is like even even from the, the the straight side on the christian evangelical side like there's a lot of couples that come into being married saving themselves and they don't know what to do with themselves mm-hmm. when they get they get in there or they think yeah. that something magical is going to happen and they find out that sex is work yeah there's <laughs> a lot of communication and it's also embarrassing and yeah. you know, all that stuff but and it's yeah it's just weird it's we different. had gone through premarital counseling but there wasn't like a if you think you prefer penises select two you know option <laughs> was it ivr for sex <laughs> sex ivr oh my yeah. god and, and and again there was no graceful exit i mean you know what were we gonna do with that at what point was i supposed to be like oh shit you know I'm gay and where it wasn't absolute humiliation and rejection mm-hmm. of me shaming of her and her family. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it was just the stakes were high from the beginning. And so, you know, I was determined to not do that to her, not allow that to happen to myself and whatever it took, I was, you know, willing to, to do the steps to not mm-hmm. be gay well, it's the the loyalty to self and then the loyalty to the person that you love is where the conflict happens, right? In the because, church, like I didn't, yeah. you know, I didn't want to hurt God and just and do what displeased Him, and you know, at least what I was being taught then. Yeah. So, which fed the depression, which fed the anxiety, which you mm. know, mm. yeah, and then the the treatment tended to actually ended up inflaming the illness. Mm. And how how did that happen? So I got, gosh, early on in our marriage, got referred to an Exodus International affiliate chapter. And what is Exodus? Because I'm not. Yeah, I keep mentioning this. I should clarify that. So I think it was like in the 90s when it kind of had its heyday. But there was a pray the gay away ministry like the parachurch organization and when someone came to a pastor and said hey i think i'm gay i know god doesn't want me to be you get funneled to an exodus local affiliate often as i was and so they happened to be across the hall from the church that i was on staff with so we had like shared office space um so it was a pretty easy referral 
And so Exodus International was there to heal unwanted same-sex attraction, to heal homosexuality. There were scripture-based Bible studies and programs and prayer meetings. So that was kind of the church's way of handling that. And they had examples of people who had successfully been healed of being gay and they were married and they had kids. So with that, you know, Exodus has conferences and we would go to those. I went to a national conference in Point Loma Nazarene College in California. So there you are with like a couple of thousand people who are trying not to be gay and going through these programs together. So I think Exodus had, I don't know how many tens of thousands of us went through that time, you know, during that ministry during that time, but a huge ministry. I, I know mm-hmm. a lot about that too. So I understand why it was, it, so I don't want to use the word successful because we know it's not, but I, I, I guess popular and sought after during that time. That was the only avenue. Yeah, it was. That, that was the thing. Like that, that, that or was, you were the, the worship pastor. Yeah, no, that, I mean, that, that, well. <laughs> no, it was true, but they yeah, didn't come out. <laughs> I mean, that, that, that program had the most organization, the most funding, the most muscle, the most, all of it was, it was very built up and commercialized and marketed well and all this to churches. And, and the um, only voice allowed in evangelical circles. It wasn't like you had alternative. Yeah. You know. Yeah, that they had the the, the market on on that exactly, and you know what it does is it prays. I, I use the word pray very specifically, P R E Y, because mm-hmm. it preys on people who are at a really vulnerable place in their life. Like, oh god, I mean, yeah. so struggling with you know people who are in LGBT community, Q plus community, the struggle of trying to understand identity to match gender identity sex identity all of it together is so intense and when you Mm -hmm. add the backdrop of trying to follow a christian faith on top of that as well as most likely coming from a conservative family conservative background and you know like you were living in the south like all of this added in is a lot and And think of where i am at that point contextually yeah you know i'm living in richmond virginia in the south i'm a newlywed so you know i stood to risk not only i guess my friends and reputation but you know my Mm -hmm. marriage yeah i stood to risk my job because i was employed i was an associate pastor i think at that point i don't even know what the title was but i was in grad school i'm getting my master's in christian ed on staff with the church so i would have lost my wife my job, my reputation, and I had young children at that point. Yeah. You know, but by the time I was deeper into Exodus, you know, I had little kids. Mm. There was no, there was no other path. Yeah. And and here here comes Exodus, you know, Mm -hmm. with this. Take up your cross. Yep. We have this solution. It's almost like a patriotic, like you said, take up your cross. It's a very patriotic aspect Mm -hmm. of, of you know, come and follow this cause. It's valiant. It's powerful. It's, you're going to look strong and victorious and courageous doing this. It markets that whole place there you you want to be you want to conquer this in your life you want to get over it so you can move on to with what you've been told or what you have been yeah. led to think is what you're supposed this to do this is a burden right? and this is yeah you know it's a hindrance and it's only temporary and and there's also an emphasis on you know there has to be like a psychological root to your gayness like no one's born gay and in, in exodus framework it's because someone sinned 
you know, either you were molested or there's a sin of your forefathers being handed down or there's a curse or a demon. Uh, you know, there, there's got to be some external cause for you, this. You have an overbearing mother, an absent father. All of these mm -hmm. things play into it. Yep. Which, unfortunately, in some cases, they're true for some people. And so you have a lot of people who say, oh, well, that's me because that's actually what their life is like. But it's it's not. I mean, they're a, not the causes of their gayness, right, but yes, exactly. they do have overbearing mom or whatever. Right. Coincidentally, but yeah. right, which can compound the yeah, exactly. But so you you said that you had two young kids at this point. So kind of where where are we at in the timeline right now? Okay, so um, I think we're about ninety nine. Okay, so I'm going at this point to a paid professional therapist who is also part of this ministry worldview so his he mm -hmm. is there to it's gay reparative therapy to heal your your gay brokenness so i'm going to a therapist getting medication for depression but don't, not talking to the psychiatrist about my gayness in exodus circles in those kind of closed groups you're discouraged from talking to mental health practitioners about this because they wouldn't understand you know, this they're is a secular. spiritual battle. They're secular. They're going to encourage you to do worldly things and not follow the way of the Lord and all that crap. So it's very insular. I was also at that point getting plugged in with another ex-gay ministry called Desert Stream, who does a living waters curriculum. So that's kind of like Exodus on crack. It's very charismatic and intense and invasive, very damaging shit that they, that, they do so that took it to a whole new level so i want to kind of fast forward a little bit kind of moving us into the, into the future and kind of in, into the current where we are right now so yeah, yeah with all of that how did you like think how did you end up on drugs <laughs> <laughs> well i'm sure i mean <laughs> go talk about that yeah so gosh there's so much life that took place during those 25 years i have two beautiful kids of i wouldn't trade a thing they're amazing i've met them yeah both. and Love i had them. a great friendship with my ex-wife we did mm -hmm. so much we were each other's really biggest fans and supporters we grew up together because we started out together so young and also went through kind of a theological deconstruction together so as my theology is changing as my kids are maturing I, we're finding space we're realizing the clobber scriptures that we thought um, showed that, you know, being gay was not God's best or whatever, you know, bullshit way they have to phrase it. were not really valid and questionable at best. And our theology started to become gay affirming and inclusive. And I went with my ex to hear Nadia Boltz Weber and Rachel Held Evans in downtown Chicago at the Why Christian Conference. And they had every speaker that weekend was gay, lesbian, trans, some minority that had every reason in the world to hate the church. And they had the most love for the capital C church and for the gospel. And it was beautiful and it broke me open. You know, I, I was like, if God loves these people and, and there's room for them, there's room for me. You know, and it just kind of, there was a te tectonic shift. But at the same time, I still couldn't verbalize it. There was so much repressed and damaged from those decades of therapies that I just mean, I couldn't even say it out loud. So 
my depression, you know, with bipolar disorder, sometimes, particularly with bipolar type two, the depressive swings can be very severe. And I've dealt with, you know, suicidal ideations over the years or just thoughts of just escaping. And I, I didn't ever really have a plan, but I, if I got to the place where that was all I could think about, then, you know, I agreed that I'd raise a flag and that really didn't happen very often. We were at one of those places back in 2015, I want to say. And so my doctor at that point, we had exhausted so many different medications and treatments and they were considering electro electroconvulsive therapy which if you're not familiar with it, they still do shock therapy. It's not like one flew over the cuckoo's nest. It's, you know, it's very targeted, very controlled and the patient's sedated. And it's not this, you know, we're going to lie. We're going to tie you up and shock you kind of a thing, but you know, it's intense. There can be short-term memory loss. It's expensive, yada, yada. And you have to do several. So it was that go back into inpatient treatment in the hospital or there was this new breakthrough treatment that they were just starting to test an IV ketamine infusion. So ketamine is, is that you're familiar with it as a party drug, special K. It's also a, a sedative that's used in surgery and it's been used for decades. It's cheap. It's generic. You know, it's, I'm sorry, it's a um, anesthetic, but they found at really low doses over a period of an hour, it can be not only healing for depression, but it can help someone recover from suicidal depression in four hours. It has like an immediate effect. So that's, you know, with just one treatment, with prolonged treatment, some people, it is curative for for mild to moderate depression. For other folks, it's just a profound life-giving drug. It's it's a maintenance med, but compared to the other stuff I've been on, it was just incredible. It's been great. That's awesome. What would you there's say? A lot there. <laughs> yeah, there's there's a lot to unpack here based on what, what you just went through. What would you say was like the one turning point for you where you where you decided this stuff isn't working and I have to do something different. I have to make the decision to, you know, come out and Mm -hmm. not not keep doing the the ministry and things like that like was there a breaking point for that or was it just something that gradually happened over time so that's fair i think it was the convergence of you know as my theology is shifting there's also there's another story ongoing with my friendship relationship with my current husband so there was a, a voice there also encouraging me to be honest and be my true self, someone who actually thought my true self was beautiful. I didn't know what to do with that. But ketamine allows you to, you know, during those infusions, you're in a doctor's office, you've got staff there, they're monitoring your blood pressure, your heart rate. It is a guided medical experience, but the treatment itself is kind of like this journey, you know, Mm. it's a little trippy, but it's a very profound psychological journey Mm. and it allows you to revisit past trauma without any pain any sadness or a strong emotional negative reaction it's like all of that is turned off and it's a very objective revisiting of those things part of those journeys unexpected to me was just an honest conversation and recognition with myself that you know you won't die if you come out Mm. 
and this is who you really are and it's okay it's okay it was enough to just have little breakthroughs with that and also as ketamine kind of reduced the volume of the PTSD really it was PTSD from mm. repair of therapy and I learned through treatment at that point that's part of what I was healing from but ketamine allows you to revisit those past traumas and also like Exodus encourages you to kind of magnify things that really weren't as traumatic in order mm. to fit the narrative of yes, you being does. sexually broken. Mm -hmm. So the irony was, is that they were the ones traumatizing me, the church facilitators of this ministry, the people who, who paid to fund it and the authors and the curriculum, all of that. It's that treatment was what was making me sicker. Mm. So as I moved away from that, when I, I think the, one of the pivotal parts was moving away from Virginia, moving away from the Bible Belt, but each step further away from that insular culture and ha having the freedom to question what we were taught about the inerrancy of the Bible or you know certain scriptures or realizing, oh shit, we were taught some really bad things, and this isn't love, you know that was you know part of the backdrop, but ketamine. As the PTSD, the severity of the anxiety decreased, I was able to articulate some more of what was going on below the surface and starting to have some honest conversations. And I think when we moved to Colorado, I remember just a couple of going a couple of walks with my wife and just realizing I'm gay. Like, I'm not bisexual. I was trying to work it through in my head. I think post exodus and post desert stream i thought well maybe i'm just bisexual and i love this woman we're married i'm gonna stay committed to her but i'm you know i'm bisexual and um i i think uh, you know while we're out there in colorado and i have i'm in a much healthier place i just it was able to come out you know and then once once i rung that bell i needed to make sure i rung it loud enough that i couldn't backpedal because i'd done that a few times in the past Mm -hmm. So I'd be very clear about it for myself. Well, I've really enjoyed you and just, just hearing your perspective on that as just as we've been friends, I remember five years ago or however long it was when we first started talking and you were just kind of moving into this process of kind of transitioning your life out of that with your ex-wife and kind of moving into more of a relationship with your, your current husband now who I love and he's amazing <laughs> and <too>. wonderful. And <laughs> I, I, I remember I had lost a job for some very unfortunate reasons. And I remember mm -hmm. I went out and uh, visited you on my time of major crisis <laughs> and, and um, we had a great time in Colorado and just hearing you talk about some of this stuff that we're talking about tonight was really, you know, and I was, I was in, in a kind of different place with my sexuality and stuff too, but, you know, just hearing you talk about that just gave me a ton of inspiration and a lot of, and hearing you talk about ketamine and talking about kind of that therapy. And I had never heard of it. Like, I didn't know what it was. A lot of, I don't think a lot of people have, it's, it's not, it's not talked about a whole lot. So yeah, I would definitely encourage you to, for those listening, if this is new to you, you know, Google ketamine IV infusions. It was built, designed by a study from Dr. Carlos Zarati at the National Institute of Mental Health. And one of my daughters and I were involved in a study with them and had the opportunity to 
I did to participate in the treatment trial, but I couldn't live at the NIH for, for a couple of months. That wouldn't have worked. So right. I pursued it on my own. But there are infusion centers popping up all around the country now. It's not covered by insurance. It's cash only. That's usually the big barrier to treatment for folks. Although it is cheaper than most prescription antidepressants. It's mm. generic and readily available. It's just not covered by insurance. So doctors are having to create these private clinics in order to meet this need right now. Well, yeah, I, yeah. I, I definitely want to check it out more and learn more about it. I know what it's done for you. And, you know, when I will text you or talk to you, you'll talk about your ketamine infusion in your treatment and just how much it helps you and how it kind of helps helps regulate you and give you the ability to move forward. And you've made such some amazing change in your life that like you now have moved to North Carolina with your now wonderful husband and you, you know, you have a, yeah, a little apartment there and I've, I've visited you guys there and it's, yeah. So just, just I, kind of I am so much, yeah, so much stronger as a result of those treatments. I think the resilience, it's not like, you know, a happiness infusion, but it definitely yeah. for me gave me the ability to just the, the drive to want to get up off the couch and do something and the drive to make a, minor change and then you just build on those things and you have successes and suddenly you have momentum but for me you know to, to wake up in the morning and not have a sinking feeling of oh god i've got to do another day you know but to wake up and feel like i can do this i'm not excited about getting out of bed but i can do this <laughs> it's dramatic you know yeah even in my most in my stronger depressive swing moments there's a there's a bottom to it it doesn't feel like a bottomless pit mm. well you are such a you show throughout all of that just who you are as a person that all of that doesn't have to mean the absence of confidence and strength because you you exude that in who you are as a person just your your confidence and your your boldness and who you are and and how you love and care for other people has inspired me. And you've been such an influential person in my life. I love having you as a friend. Um, and you taught, taught me a lot. Thank you. So, yeah. yeah. Well, that was amazing. So thank you for, yeah. Oh my God, we covered so much ground. <laughs> we did. That was awesome. <laughs> I feel like I didn't <laughs> we touched on so many things. It was a whirlwind. Well, we're not quite done yet. Chris, should we ask him a couple of interesting questions? Oh God, bring it. I think we should. I think okay. we should. All right. Do you want one? You want to pick one, Chris? This lightning yeah. round. Yeah, yeah. This is kind of. These are kind of lightning round questions. They're just something light to end the show with. Oh, there you go. Breaking out the fan. Out the fan. For our listeners who can't see it, he just broke out an amazing rainbow flag fan, which I'm jealous of. And I want one for Pride Month. Yay. Yes. <laughs> oh, yes. And we can't forget the whole. Our we have five queer kids. We do want to mention this. Oh yes. <laughs> Irony of ironies or not, but after. I came out, which was really very traumatic, obviously, for our family at the time. But since then, I have one of my kids who's come out as non-binary and lesbian, and the other kid is bisexual. And I'm not like, yay, me, I destroyed our family. So, you know, there is a narrative <laughs> of I destroyed the family and blah, blah. But, you know, I, in retrospect, I think it just gave everybody permission to tell the truth. And I think are both coming out gave his kids as well the permission to i mean because it's just a very matter of fact conversation you know we have like the a very queer friendly house 
So, I mean, it's kind of something amazing and beautiful has come out of it. Very unexpected. And the only other thing I do want to mention is very important is there is a movie about, not my experience specifically, but there is a movie documentary coming out that was just picked up by Netflix called Pray Away. And it is the story of Exodus Ministries. Everyone in that movie that I saw from the clip, I know. I mean, they were the leaders and speakers at the conferences I went to and wrote the books I read. And um, mm. it, it is the goal of the goal of the movie. And my I'm not affiliated with it, but my goal in raising visibility is that gay reparative therapy is still going on. It has been you know, made illegal in many states, but it is still allowed to be practiced in faith communities. So hidden behind the doors of the church, you still got living waters. And I don't remember, there's a light version of that. Desert Stream is the name of the ministry. But that stuff, Exodus has been closed down. The doors of Exodus have been closed, but gay reparative therapy still exists. So see the movie, learn the story, and, and make sure your kids see it too. Yeah, interesting. Little plug there. Well, that's good. I'm I'm definitely going right. to watch it. I've I've been aware of that for a short minute, so I'm I'm definitely going to watch that. I'm excited about to see that. So, good, good. Yeah. All awesome. right, let's see here. So, interesting questions. If this you were you're a singer, you enjoy music. Yes. If you were put on a stage and forced to sing a song, what would you sing? Oh God, uh, it's been so long since I've sung. There's a song called "Your Love Stays with Me." It's like an old gospel song. And I think I would, I'd bust that out because I, I know, <laughs> I know the words in the song and not afraid to sing it acapella. Awesome. That's the first thing that came to mind. Yeah. That's great. What is your beverage of choice in the morning? Iced coffee, like any self-respecting gay man. <laughs> now, do you put anything in it or do you just drink that stuff? Now, now is this, is this like homebrewed coffee? Is this like, what kind of ice brew coffee are we talking? Cold I mean, brew if I or? had a Starbucks that, you know, I was allowed to go to first thing in the morning, I'd probably be getting a, you know, a vanilla sweet cream cold brew, but at home I'm just mm. doing iced cold brew. Okay. Maybe a little bit of vanilla creamer. Nice. But cold brew. I want to ask you go. this one. If you had to fight a children's book character, what character would it be and why? Why would you fight them? All right, true confession. I kind of want to smash Skippy John Jones with a giant encyclopedia. I just get <laughs> <laughs> the chihuahua who thought he was a Siamese cat. Or it was, it was an obnoxious, irritating kid's story. And my kids loved it and made me read it over and over again in accents. So I, I just... <laughs> Can you name the book again? What was the book? Oh, the character is Skippy John Jones. Found okay. it on Amazon. Yeah. <laughs> Michael, I'll, I'll send you a copy. Yeah, I'm not familiar. And you can with read this, it on the next episode. You're making me come to... up with this shit off the top of my head. <laughs> That's why they're interesting questions. <laughs> I love it. I can't change my answer. All right, go ahead. Well, should should we ask the last question, Chris? The the the, the golden question. So, at the end of every episode, we do we do a final question, and the final question is not generated by Michael and I. It's actually generated by our previous guest. So after we ask this question, you're going to get to ask your own question of the next guest. Oh, okay. So the question for you is, if you were to die, God forbid, what tangible gift of a legacy would you like to give to the world? In other words, like if someone's having a bad day, a flower appears. Mm -hmm. I, 
And that would be your tangible gift to everyone in the world. I feel like my legacy is my story. I feel like I have been been very intentional about speaking about my mental health journey to to break stigma, to give people permission to, especially men, to give permission to talk about struggles and getting medication and falling apart and losing their shit, needing to take time off of work. My story of coming out and of falling in love and living my you know, true self. So, I mean, I think that's it. I mean, I, I had so much taken away from, I don't know, taken away or lost in coming out, you know, mm-hmm. so much of the family that I had known in Christian world, because there wasn't room there for that, you know, I lost my house and all this other stuff I had to give away, but I have left is my most authentic true self. And I now know love, really know love. And I know sexual intimacy that I, the kind that I was made for. So just my authenticity and my story, I think. And I hope that my kids will live as boldly and out loud too. And they are now, damn, you should see their stories. (laughs) (laughs) And we'll have them on sometime. Yeah, you should. I was looking for guests. Oh gosh. Yeah. Denny would be glad to tell you their story. Interesting. That's awesome. Okay, so the next thing, of course, after that is what question do you have for our next guest? Hmm. Do you think it's always appropriate to apologize when you've wronged someone? Ooh. Do you do you think it's always appropriate to apologize when you've wronged mm-hmm. someone? Like, yeah. I mean, do you need to go back and revisit? A wrong or sometimes you yeah i just want to know do you think it's always right to apologize when you when you've wronged somebody as a southerner I, my gut is just yeah you apologize i'm sorry i'm sorry i'm sorry i'm sorry <laughs> yeah i apologize for everything even if it doesn't need an apology and, and what yeah and what does that look like like you know yeah you could really extrapolate with that question yep that's a yep. i will be chewing on that question for weeks now so that's a really good question that's an interesting one. Yeah. It's an interesting one. I don't one know too. my own answer to it, but <laughs> <laughs> I mean it's a it's a good one. It's a good one to deliberate over it. Yeah, that, yeah. That'll be interesting to see how the next guest responds. So awesome. Okay. Well, do you want to be found? And if so, where can people find you? Gosh, yes. You can find me. I did my blogging and video blogging work for Bipolar magazine. If you oh, Google yeah. bphope.com, there's some of my work there. I guess that's where you would find me. I don't have another another big presence. I mean, I got a big presence, but. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was really thrown off, by the way, yeah. when I saw you, because Michael sent this BP stuff to me earlier today, mm-hmm. and it has your headshot, and you don't have this amazing beard. Yeah, that was like 15-something years ago. Yeah. I was and- heavier, and I, yeah, I didn't have this here. Here, I had a little more here. <laughs> It's funny how it just inverts, right? It does. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, John, thank you so much for coming on the show today. This has been great. Yeah. Thank you guys so much. This has been fun. I mean, we covered a lot of ground. <laughs> yes, we did. But it's it's all such important stuff. And it's it's such a powerful, rich, unique story. So thank you for coming on. And I know I have loved getting to know you over the past years that I've uh, we've been friends. And I'm just really happy that you came on the podcast. So thanks for being here, man. Thanks, guys. Absolutely. Thank you, John. All right. Thank you. All right. Well, if you found the show interesting, 
And we know you did, or you wouldn't have made it to this point. Then be sure to follow us on your podcast player of choice and leave us a review. We really hope it's five stars. If it is five stars, we'll read your comment on our next episode. Also, be sure to keep up with the latest on the show at oi-pod. And you can follow me on all the social platforms at Christopheles. You can follow me at Eternal Opus 87 on Twitter and Instagram. And Michael, I, I just have to say I'm a little, little disappointed because I had said when I started this episode that I wanted you to ask me a question about what happened outside and you never you never asked you didn't tell me to ask you you said you were going to tell you i said as i said i'm not going to tell you what happened ask me about it when i sit down and you never did yeah so what (laughs) happened outside let's let's i now need to know what happened so my wife texted me and said hey there's someone at the door can you get it i'm taking care of our son and i was like yeah yeah sure so i go downstairs i open the door and there was nobody there and i was like ah we got ding dong ditched i saw some kids walking down the street but they saw me open the door and they came over to me and they said hey we have and i looked down and they had a little duckling in their hands and they said we have a little duck and it doesn't have a home and we just found it and we want to we want to give it to somebody who can take it into their home and take care of it and i said that's weird i know well we have a pond like not too far from our neighborhood and i think some of the kids from that neighborhood and our neighborhood were hanging out and they ran into this little poor duckling and they were just soliciting a duck to random neighbors the crazy thing is a neighbor a couple of houses down actually keeps ducks and so i thought maybe they would want it and i was like did you try the neighbor down the street that has a couple of white ducks your neighborhood what, is what so weird they are dude we have such a weird neighborhood and they were like no 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 we'll um the, we already went down there and they have another duck that's like dying and all this stuff and i was like what like this is depressing I mean, and i was so like here's i'm what not I gonna take done. the duck if that was me i would have said oh my gosh you know what i need to go to the grocery store that's the one ingredient i didn't have hang on a second and i and i would <laughs> oh <laughs> i would walk into the kitchen i would grab like a large crock pot and come back out and say just throw it and put it in here i'll take it from i'll just <laughs> you yeah know, just, i told them a nice stew or some nice meat for my porridge later i don't know but that's what yeah. i would have done well here's the weird part so so like <laughs> If that's yeah, if that's not weird enough. So I tell the girl, like, she's she's like 14 or something, and I'm like, look, like, I'm sorry, we we can't take a duck. If you've already talked to the neighbor down the street that has a duck and they won't take any more ducks, like I can't I can't help you. Turn down the duck. She said, I've already got I was like, you can take care of it. Like you're responsible. She said, I already have a duck at home and it's blind. And so I said, well, there you go. You've got a seeing eye duck oh now. Oh, my gosh. You did not say that. I did. You are I a did. ridiculous person. You literally said that. And yeah, also, did. you turn like you had a child come to you with a living creature that needed help and you turned it down. I did. You, I don't like, I don't know what to do with that. You have to realize my heart is bigger than that. My dog is a rescue dog. I found her running down the street from a Chinese restaurant, and I swear she was going to be eaten there. Well, I, I didn't don't know save anymore her. because you do, you turned the duck down. So I don't know if your heart and, is that big anymore. I don't know well, if it's shrunk over I, the years. I didn't want to eat the duck, and the rescue dog would want to eat the duck. So, uh-huh. like, I had no good place for the pet. I had no, like, it, it would make no sense. Now, that said, my wife loves ducks. So it would like had she been at the door, we would have had a duck. Like we would have had a duck at least for a day. I really hope but, that but someone I mean, from like a, PETA but, doesn't listen to this podcast because it's gonna be they'll be at your, your doorstep next. Yeah, like PETA, yeah. you, you don't want but, PETA at your doorstep. You know, but like yeah, it just 
I don't know. Like, I, I wasn't going to take the duck. Like, you should have taken the duck. Well, they, the, the other thing is, this is a bunch of random teenagers running around with a duckling. Like, they've, they've gotten themselves into a mess just by touching the poor creature. Like, it's not my fault. So it's you're going to punish the duck for the, the transgressions of these, gonna, in, these no, ignorant I'm gonna teenagers? No, I'm going to let the children live with their consequences. <laughs> <laughs> On that note, this has been a fun conversation. <laughs> okay.